Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the third in the uh, lecture series this year, the Annie Kincaid-Warfield Lectures, this year offered by Dr. Federico Nussel. Dr. Nussel is a professor of systematic theology and director of the Ecumenical Institute at Heidelberg University. She's the director of the Marsilius Colleague Institute for Interdisciplinary Inquiry at the university. That sounds very interesting to me. And do I have this right? She's also vice rector for education at the university. You were that. Um, she's a prolific author, essayist, editor, who works at the intersection of dogmatic and ecumenical theology. So yes, she may have been that, but she strikes me as a very busy person. So we are very grateful for the time you've carved out to work on these lectures, to present them to us, to come all this way and spend time with us. Her lecture this evening is entitled The Creating Spirit as the Power of Diversity. Dr. Musil, welcome. I should say that the gratitude is on my side. <laughs> I'm really very uh, pleased to be here. And whenever um, I'm not here in this room, I'm up in the library, which is the best place <laughs> I know. Um, so I begin with developments in the doctrine of creation. In this afternoon's lecture, I discussed the dynamics of the biblical discourse on the spirit and its explication in the doctrine of the Trinity. With the transmission context, it arises that God is spirit in and through the spirit's activity, which eternally determines the fellowship and differentiation of father and son, or mother and daughter. I learned that from my conversation with Carrie Day this afternoon, that it might be better to now and then switch. In this acti activity, God's spirit is a person in relation to the person of the mother and the daughter. Tonight's lecture will discuss the creative activity of the spirit in God's creative action. In my project of a pneumatological dogmatics, I want to unpack the traditional doctrine of creation from the perspective of the activity of the spirit. This project differs from many modern approaches as well as from the confessional Protestant dogmatics that have long shaped reformed and Lutheran doctrinal norms on both sides of the Atlantic. The ancient dogmatics do not specifically emphasize the special effect of the spirit in the act of creation. The reason for this lack of attention to the spirit is twofold. First, they follow the patristic rule of the opera ad extra indivisa sunt, so the um, external works are not divided, in order to avoid the charge of treatism. God, Father, and Son act uh, together in the three great works of God, creation, redemption, and consummation or reconciliation. However, the rule is not completely upheld in confessional dogmatics because the work of creation was assigned or appropriated particularly to the father, that of redemption to the son, and that of consummation to the spirit. The appropriations led to the importance of the son and the spirit as being only tertiarily uh, considered, especially in the doctrine of creation, despite the son being described in the New Testament as the mediator of creation in the, and in the Hebrew Bible connected with wisdom. In contrast to the old dogmatic, it is part of the signature of modern dogmatics in the strict sense that they must respond to cultural crisis and scientific revolutions and discuss the doctrine of creation in response to natural sciences. I said in my first lecture that dogmatics is about orientation and orientation works through modeling. Therefore, let us uh, look at the models or options that were developed to tackle this severe new challenge. In a historical study, the Münster um, uh, church historian Albrecht Beutel has shown that in response to Darwin's theory of evolution, 
three different models quickly emerged. First, the response model of antithesis, which proposes the biblical worldview to be the superior and accurate one over and above the scientific one. Second, the model of integration, which tries to establish the compatibility of the scientific and biblical theological world, world explanation. And finally, a third model, the model of distinction, in which the scientific and biblical theological world explanation are broken down as to different ways of explaining reality. In a sense, they are two different languages functioning differently and try to give an answer to, to different questions. These models can be discerned in the various approaches to a theology of creation today. Karl Barth, as I read him, represents the distinctive approach. In his Kirchliche Dogmatik, he developed an understanding of creation strictly from the word of God and covenant and kept cosmological and life science questions out of the doctrine of creation. Ulrich Barth, a liberal theologian in the tradition of Kant, Fichte and Schleiermacher, he's not a relative, um, uh, took a similar approach 50 years later in an essay titled Abschied von der um, Kosmologie, Goodbye to Cosmology. <laughs> he too decidedly advocates for a distinctive definition for, of the relationship between the doctrine of creation and natural science. However, he makes clear that religious interpretation of meaning and scientific explanation of the world cannot be distinguished as subjective or, and objective knowledge. Natural science does not simply depict reality, nor does it simply abstract its models from the observation of nature, but rather it generates nature and structures empiricism in its horizon. By way of contrast, faith in a creation in the Christian religion is about the, as he says, consciousness of being unconditionally grounded. Belief in a creation is, quote, nothing other than the internal interaction of the human with the experience of finitude in the form of religious self-reflection on finite freedom. In fundamental theological terms, <clears throat> there are worlds that lie beyond, beyond, uh, between the two parts. One is the revelation theologian and the other one is the religious consciousness theologian. Um, <clears throat> but um, um, uh, how, uh, the, in the doctrine of cre uh, creation, the two parts are very similar. The opposite end of the spectrum is made up of theologies of creation which understand creation as an act of God through which the world and humans come into being and are providentially accompanied in their development by God. Such approaches either contrast the biblical ideas with the findings of the natural and life sciences in an antithetical way, and this is the case in creationist theories. The other option is take the path of integration. As far as I can tell, there are no approaches of the first type antithesis in German-speaking ac academic theology. <clears throat> as far as I can tell, um, oh no, sorry, prominent, however, are the approaches of Jürgen Moltmann, Wolfhard Pannberg, Michael Welker, and recently Douglas Otati, to name only the most influential which stand for the program of mediation or integration. In this way, take up the theological motive of process theology, the motive only. At the same time, they represent a variety of different options or models to integrate theological and scientific knowledge. As a short comment on Otati, whom I personally know, I would like to say that I really admire the way in which he describes or narrates the mystery of divine ordering and allows for the origin of life in its many forms up to human life in the chapters of his reformed theology for the 21st century. His account is performative. He speaks of the awe effect that creation theology in the Bible brings about 
and he communicates this to his readers. I remember well when I read those chapters, I really, it really changed my perception for a while. I found myself admiring every flower and tree, every nice encounter, and in doing my exercise in running, I was not disappointed about my slow speed, but was grateful that I could run at all. <laughs> Although Otadiel's account is so inspiring, he does not pay much attention to the work of the spirit in creation. This has to do with his general approach to the doctrine of God. For Otati, God is creator, judge, and redeemer. On the imminent doctrine of the Trinity, Otati is agnostic. To be sure, he rejects Unitarianism because God relates to humans by way of creation, judgment, and redemption. However, the point of speaking of the Trinity for him is not to infer the immanent eternal nature of God, but to understand the threefold relation of God to humanity in creation, judgment, and redemption as a single dynamic excellence that gives, returns, and shapes life, thus opening up new possibilities. While I understand the reserve vis-a-vis -vis Trinitarian theology because it is difficult for non-theologians to understand, I'm nevertheless convinced that patristic theology in developing the imminent doctrine of Trinity has taken a consistent and in the ancient, ancient debates necessary step. The New Testament does not only speak of the one God as creator, judge, and redeemer, but of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is deeply rooted in the liturgies of the Christian churches as well as in Christian art. Therefore, one should perhaps not underestimate the accessibility and the given cultural embeddedness of the idea of God as triune. In contrast, a merely economic Trinitarian discourse of God is equally liable to the misunderstandings of treatism and modalism with which early Christianity already wrestled. <clears throat> Second point. From my perspective, the attempts to bring Christian thinking about cre creation into conversation with the scientific understanding of the world could even benefit from including the doctrine of the Trinity, which also allows to estimate the work of the spirit. Pannenberg's doctrine of creation is a particular example of such an attempt. In his doctrine of creation, he integrates cosmological and evolutionary biological research, but it is conceived from the biblical idea of creation as its starting point. And it is precisely the doctrine of the Trinity that plays a central role in understanding the act of creation. It is actually the condition for the Christian claim that the world is the product of a free act of God. The action of the triune God in relation to the world cannot be completely different from, what, which, uh, from that which takes place in God's inner life. Rather, what constitutes the inner life of God emerges in the creative action of God. The inner multiplicity is thereby also the reason where, uh, why there can be a real multiplicity of God's acts as the Bible testifies. But the integral role of the immanent trinity as a precondition for the free action of creation is not thereby exhausted. In keeping with the theological tradition, Panberg does emphasize the inseparable unity of God in outward action, but he expresses how this unified action does not exclude a differentiated interaction. Rather, this unified action is realized precisely in the specific contributions of the individual divine persons. Therein lies Panberg's move beyond the traditional doctrine of creation, as well as beyond most contem uh, contemporary accounts of the doctrine of creation. Recalling the biblical statements about the particip participation of the Son and the Spirit in creation and redemption, Pannenberg interprets the Son and the Spirit as distinct creative principles in the act of creation. Since the Son, in his earthly history, distinguished himself from the Father, 
and submitted himself to him, Panberg understands the peculiarity of his activity in self-differentiation. The sun is thus the principle of otherness or distinctive, is distinctness. His mediatory role in creation can be understood in such a way that from him comes the distinctness of creatures from God and their distinctness from one another. In this respect, Panberg can understand the sun as the principle of otherness in the act of creation. In an analogous interpretation of the statement about the work of the spirit, he sees the spirit's role in establishing community between those who are differentiated, wherein the Holy Spirit is the element of community. The creative interaction of sun and spirit as the principles of otherness and participation, in turn, imply understanding the Father as the origin of creatures in their contingency. This Trinitarian interpretation of the act of creation is dogmatically pro very productive for several reasons. It can explain the unity of the act cre uh, of creation and conservation because the creative act always exhibits the same structure of interaction. At the same time, it can avoid a dualistic view of organic and spiritual life processes. The creative act is structurally repeated at all stages of life, from simple organic life processes to life processes at the level of consciousness. The elements of contingency differentiation and participation can be connected to the concept of emergence and thereby open up the dynamic of the act of creation for interdisciplinary dialogue. Number three, <clears throat> for the project of a pneumatological dogmatics, however, a modification is necessary. I argued in the last lecture that the spirit is underrepresented when it is solely defined as vinculum caritatis. The efficacy of the spirit goes beyond the work of creating connection. In the intra-divine relationship, the spirit unites the father and the son precisely in const constituting their difference as the condition of their communion. The mediation and enabling of difference are implicit in the diversity of creaturely life, which is enlivened by God's spirit. That God God's breath gives life to humans and animals is stated in Genesis 2, verse 7, and Job 27, verse 3, for humans, and in Psalm 104, for animals. In the first creation account of the priestly source, on the other hand, the spirit, the ruach of God, is only indirectly associated with the creaturely diversity that God creates through God's word. The first creation account, as we know, is not about presenting a cosmogony, but about narrating how God created and shaped the space or habitat for human life. Um, now I quote from my colleague in Heidelberg, Jan Gertz, who's probably familiar here as well, the account, he says, the account portrays the becoming into being of all noble order and conditions as a sequence of events and therefore requires a starting point that eludes experience and therefore did not seem describable in any other way than as a negation or as a not yet of what exists, end of quote. The intention is not to establish the act of creation as a creatio ex nihilo, not in this um, uh, uh, source. The problematic nature of this doctrine was still completely foreign to the pre-Hellenistic Orient. Genesis 1 verse 2 actually describes the state of affairs before the creation of the human environment as a disordered and chaotic not yet state of being. Before the creative and ordering action of God, the earth was a tohu wabo. it was dark, and the spirit of God hovered over the deep. The scope of the, third claim, um, of the third claims is not to assert, but God was already there. The hovering of the spirit over the waters also expresses a not yet. God is not yet active in his word, yet God's spirit is hovering and moving. 
The range of meanings of ruach includes all forms of moving air and ranges from breath to storm. The spirit is not an immaterial vastness, but a dynamic force. It lies <clears throat> like darkness over the surface of the waters of the primordial flood. The partic participle mecha peret, uh, I'm not sure whether I pronounce this correctly, um, expresses a state of ceaseless motion that on an etymological basis can be compared to the shaking flight of a bird of prey that stands in the air and moves its wings back and forth. According to Gertz, the statement underscores the basic insight of priestly scriptural thinking about creation, according to which God is God only as creator. Only and solely in relation to creation can God be spoken of other than in negation. But if one adds the image of the shaking flight, then Genesis 1 verse 2 presents the spirit as being in a vibrating waiting position before God's breath becomes active in creative speech and the diversity of beings emerge. In modern exegetical and systematic interpretations of the first creation account, it has often been observed that this account differs significantly from modern understanding of nature and our life world, yet in a closer inspection, it also contains considerable congruencies. They concern in particular the sequence of the works of creation and the insights connected with them regarding the cosmic and biological environmental conditions which belong to the necessary conditions of human life. In the description of organic life, talk about the plants and animals in the plural reverse, <coughs> refers to the diversity of species which is even more closely examined in other places in the Bible. Admittedly, the accent in the description of the action of creation is not on saying that there is a possibility of an increasing diversity with diversity of species, but this evolutionary perspective is also not excluded by the text. Human beings are also spoken of in the plural although here only the difference of male and female is found. In the background of the priestly source is probably the widespread idea of a primordial pair from which all humans come, as Gerd says. With <coughs> this idea, it is indicated that the continuance of the human being in its creaturely constitution is secured. As problematic as the notion of the primordial pair may be in evolutional biology, it is noteworthy that, unlike in plants and animals, no further characteristics are mentioned that would all allow humans to be distinguished and divided into subgroups. Geographically, <coughs> local, local, localizable varieties in skin color physique play no role. That which constitutes the humanness of human lies beyond such characteristics of diversity, um, according to Old Testament scholars. The decisive determination is the determination to the image of God with which the task of dominion is connected. The task of dominion applies equally to all human beings, regardless of the characteristics by which they differ. I come to the fourth point, spirit and diversity. Alongside the, this determination which unites all humans, the work of the spirit as described in the Bible also leads to differentiations. Through the work of the spirit, people are differently tuned in their emotional worlds, are moved to various deeds and to different ways of life and accordingly have different experiences. In the New Testament, the diversity creating power of the spirit comes to the fore above all in the diversity of spiritual gifts, which is constitutive for the living together in the Christian community. The spirit is thus life force, not only in the way that it makes life in the form of movement possible, but the dynamics of the spirit 
its power also include imparting diverse forms of life and life stories and allowing people to become different and to possess individual personalities. Life exists only in diversity and difference, which in turn are mediated by diverse environmental conditions. Human life is characterized by diversity. So I had a look at the uh, Princeton Theological Seminary diversity terms. Um, <clears throat> and I saw that um, uh, they uh, them say um, <clears throat> that diversity refers to psychological, physical, and social differences that are present everywhere in all individuals. These differences are then further defined as differences in race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, economic status, age, gender, so social or uh, sexual orientation, mental and physical abilities, and learning habits. I really like this <laughs> explanation. Um, <clears throat> if theologically speaking, life is owed to the life-giving power of the spirit, and if life exists only in, the li in diversity of living beings in general, thus all also in the diversity of human beings who differ from one another in many ways, then the diversity is a gift inherent in life. The theological insight into the work of the spirit who gives life indifference and diversity provides grounds for a positive attitude toward diversity. The key is the recognition and appreciation of differences as nuanced, news, uh, nuanced view of difference and an unbiased and constructive approach to differences. Dealing with, this, uh, with diversity in this context requires a nuanced perception of the differences because differences such as ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or economic status already have varying meanings in themselves and are associated with different challenges and horizons of experience in diverse contexts. The awareness of differences and how we deal with them is shaped by patterns of perception in which said differences are already coded in certain ways. One cannot completely escape this structure of perception, but there is the possibility to elucidate the genesis of perceptual patterns and attributions, which is an important instrument to be able to distance oneself from conventional patterns and to be open for a new encounter. Decisive for the encounter together with an openness to diversity is the readiness for self-limitation. So I come to my fifth point. A further insight about a theolo theology of creation can be helpful here. So far, I have spoken of the spirit's creative efficacy as a life-giving force, which is connected to another dimension that belongs essentially to, to God's creative action that is creative self-limitation. This concept has acquired a special meaning in German-speaking theology in the dialogue between Jewish philosopher of religion Hans Jonas and the Protestant theologian Eberhard Jüngel. The debate was about the problem of the theodicy. The starting point was Hans Jonas' speech on the occasion of being awarded the Dr. Luca, uh, Leopold Lucas Prize, in which Jonas spoke about the concept of God after Auschwitz and posed the question of how one could still speak of God from a Jewish perspective after the atrocities carried out at Auschwitz. In concrete terms, the question for Jonas is whether the three predicates, God's goodness, comprehensibility and omnipotence can, be still, can still be combined. For Jonas, comprehensibility and goodness are indispensable predicates of God's divinity. The idea of omnipotence, however, must be abandoned because it can no longer be reconciled with the idea of a comprehensible and good God in the horizon of the experience of Auschwitz. Now Jonas knows well that the idea of omnipotence for religious consciousness cannot simply be given up by way of a philosophy of religion argumentation. 
even if it can be shown that omnipotence is an inherently operatic concept. In a religious context, the concept can only be abundant through a mythical foundation. Uh, it is a myth that provides a new insight into, initial, into the initial event. This gives evidence to my thesis that religious experience needs narrative. Jonas sketches a myth to accomplish just that, which says that God, the ground of being, has decided to abandon himself to chance, to risk, and to the endless multiplicity of becoming, and that entirely. Jonas shows that he has not pulled such a myth completely out of the thin air by employing the notion of Zimtzum, the cosmogonic central concept of Lurianic Kabbalah. Zimtzum is understood here as a contraction, a withdrawal, a self-restraint of God. The world could come into being because God contracted, creating a void in which the world could gain space as an entity outside of God. Whereas in the Kabbalah, this contact, contraction of God was understood as permanent, making it possible for creatures not to disappear back in, into divine reality, Jonas radicalizes the idea. He says, the contraction is total. As a whole, the infinite, according to its power, has emptied itself into the finite and thus surrendered to it. To such total self-negation of divine omnipotence, creatures owe their being and thus bear responsibility for the world alone. And this is Jonas' concept. <laughs> In his answer to Jonas, Jungel took up the idea of myth to explain the Christian doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Creation means an original beginning, that is, a beginning that has its origin in itself. Such an act of original beginning is a creative act of God only if it is understood as an act of creative self-limitation. For to be creatively active always means to let oneself to be limited also by one's own work. Creative action is not an obsession with self-increase. In creating, God allows something else to have a beginning beside God's own being, thus giving space to that creature, an act which requires self-limitation. Jüngel, however, then radicalizes this thought in a very different way than Jonas. He argues that the traditional metaphysically conceived concept of the divine limitlessness be made more precise by the idea of divine self-limitation. For it is by no means foreign to God, but rather it is essential to him to be able to limit himself. The immanent nature of God shows his self-limitation, in which the Father limits himself through the Son and the Spirit. This self-limitation is repeated in, in the creation of the world. These considerations are unmistakably close to Hegel. With, with the difference being, however, that Hegel was even more radical. For Hegel, the self-limitation of God is necessary in the creation of the world because God only possesses it through a powerful other as a counterpart. The point in Jüngel's answer to Jonas, however, is not already made in saying that self-limitation is an essential implication of genuine, genuine limitlessness, but in how Jüngel deals with the concept of divine omnipotence. Unlike Jonas, Jüngel does not want to give up this predicate for the Christian understanding of God, precisely because he rejects with Jonas an abstract concept of omnipotence. According to Jüngel, however, the meaning of the true omnipotence of God can only be known in the revelation of God in God's coming to the world in the human Jesus. In this event, however, God's omnipotence is revealed as the omnipotence of love. Because God is relation, a relational being, God cannot be thought of as relationless to God's own creation. The noble efficacy, however, consists in the revelation of God's love, even unto death and in the, in the story of Jesus. Here it becomes apparent that God is love and that is love, and that this love 
is to be determined as the unity of life and death in favor of life, a famous uh, formulation of, of Jüngel. Jüngel's response interests me in the context of the pneumatological, uh, pneumatological doctrine of creation, not because of his death of God theology, but because he conceives of God's creation as self-limitation and finds the ground in God's immanent being. The act of creation implies self-limitation. Panberg can positively say that God grants creatures an existing, existence distinct from God. However, Jüngel's argument also makes clear that he ties God's creative activity in the world to revelation. God's creative efficacy consists in that God makes all humans priests through the event of revelation. A Christological understanding of creation has, has the advantage that talk of God's activity in the world is maintained and a tracing back of evil and suffering to God's activity is out of the question. Jüngels does emphasize that evil and misery cannot be traced back to another power besides God by determining it as a hidden work of God. Yet Jüngel decidedly does not speak of a creative work in the processes of life. The problem of theodicy is not solved, nor can it be solved, but it is disarmed, so to speak. The act of creation is reduced to the act of revelation. One can see in his, this re reduction a theologically revelatory intensification of the idea of creation, but also a trivialization of speech about creation in the Bible and the divine working of the spirit. In contrast, I propose to grasp the idea of creative self-limitation in a somewhat different way and to bring it together with the creative working of the spirit. The spirit gives life throughout the different de developmental stages of evolution and in a growing diversity of forms at different levels. As creatures arrive at the stage of independent life, God limits God's self in the power of the spirit. Such self-limitation does not begin only with the bringing forth of life, but already with the bringing forth of the manifold inorganic and natural law conditions for life. Already in the priestly creation narrative, God spends more than half of the days with the creation of the cosmic conditions under which animals and humans can live. In the bringing forth of life in diversity and difference, the work of the spirit realizes the, realizes the self-limitation of God in favor of the world, of, uh, world and creatures. The spirit is, even in the immanent trinity, the principle of life in that the spirit makes the father and son differentiated in their communion, as I've tried to show in the last lecture. For God's inner Trinitarian life, it means that the Father limits himself through the Spirit in the Son. The Son, in turn, accomplishes through the Spirit the self-limitation of the Father by fulfilling the Son's determination as the other of the Father. Within these considerations, I'm adapting Panberg's determination of the Trinitarian act of creation but interpreting the role of Father, Son, and Spirit somewhat differently by understanding the Spirit not only as the principle of community and participation, but connectedly as the principle of difference and diversity. This interpretation raises the question of what the specific contributions of Father and Son are in the Trinitarian act of creation. If one assumes that creative self-limitation takes place in the life-giving activity of God's spirit, then the specific role of the father can be seen in the fact that he, as the origin of being, gives space to other beings outside himself. Since the father is the origin of, his, of this existence outside of himself, ah, see, without creation necessarily falling from him, the existence distinguished by him is contingent. The father can therefore be understood as the source of con contingent existence or in short, as the ground of contingency. 
The existence that emerges from the father is in turn that which limits him. Since the son through the spirit inner trinitarily fulfills the determination of this differentiation in the relationship to the father, he can be understood as the principle of self-limitation. In the son, it is revealed that creatures are indeed determined for independent existence, but to exist in such a way that they do not cut themselves off from God as the source of their life or substitute themselves for God. So they are to limit themselves in relation to God and in relation to one another. My point in these considerations is to explore diversity and self-limitation as the principles of life being rooted in the divine. One might object that not much is gained by such considerations for the challenges of dealing with diversity, which could be the case in the end. However, there are quite a few societies worldwide in which diversity is ignored. There are churches that are not open to diversity, even those that justify war by saying they must free their co-religionists from the compulsion to participate in gay parades. There are churches that support the self-assertion of autocrats. In light of such developments, it may be useful to reflect on the signature of divine creative action, and in particular, the efficacy of the spirit. In doing so, I have intentionally not yet spoken of the fact that God's love becomes manifest in the life-giving efficacy of the spirit and in the creative self-limitation mediated by the spirit. For it is only through revelation of God in the event of redemption that one can derive the knowledge of the beautiful act of creating the world is an expression of the love of God. My last point, the problem of theodicy. If the work of the spirit in creation is emphasized without engaging in Christological reductionism, then the problem of theodicy arises, which many theologians simply shift, <coughs> today sh simply shift to the focus into Christology and soteriology. If you miss this point, it is missing. <laughs> I added it. <laughs> um, such a pr dogmatic procedure um, which shifts the problem to Christology, is only honest when the Bible is considered, since the Bible does not only speak about the life-promoting work of the Spirit. For example, I can look at Isaiah 40, 6 to 8. All people are grass, their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. The prophet thus emphasizes that Israel is fleeting and the word of the God is the only thing that endures forever. However, it is the spirit of God, Ruach, that causes the grass to wither and the flower to fade. In Isaiah 45, uh, 45 verse 6 and 7, the theological intent becomes clear, quote, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create wheel and create woe. I, the Lord, do these things. The becoming and the perishing are accomplished by God. There is no other way to grasp the monotheistic notion of God. What it means for concrete human life is shown in the book of Job in the narration of his life story. Exegetically, it is revealing to see how the spirit is lost in the New Testament transmission of Isaiah 40. In uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, 24 and 25 is the quote, but only it, qu it quotes only partially saying, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, no spirit anymore. In the same way, Johannes Brahms, also quotes from the Isaiah verses in his Requiem, but in the Pepita version. <laughs> um, I owe these references to Konrad Schmidt, the Old Testament scholar, best, also best known here in Princeton. <laughs> Forgetting the spirit is probably not coincidental, since 
In the New Testament, the spirit is responsible for redemption. It would not fit, it would not fit with the in, exegetical intent if the spirit sweeps over people to cause them to wither. However, the Old Testament needs to be followed here and taken seriously in its claim that the spirit is a force that can also be destructive. The spirit can grieve people and above all, the spirit not only gives life, but also takes away the breath of life, causing death. In other words, the self-limitation of God in the spirit enables life in autonomy and diversity, yet the autonomy is relative and conditioned. It reminds, remains dependent on a sustaining work of the spirit. When the spirit withdraws completely, there is no more life. This is still another dimension worth considering. The spirit <laughs> gives diversity, but such diversity can degenerate into independence turned against life. On the level of conscious human life, turning against life is sin. I will talk about this aspect in tomorrow's lecture. On the level of organic life, disease and death occur. How can God allow such things to happen? How can God allow creatures to suffer? How can we speak of God's justice and goodness in the face of such experiences? The orientation which can and must be given by dogmatics is entirely ele elementary. Dogmatics must first of all admit there is no, not a single theological satisfactory answer to the problem of theodicy. The question of theodicy will not be solved until God has overcome evil and suffering and, biblically speaking, has wiped away all the tears from our eyes. Rational attempts of explanation, such, such as the attempt of uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, are problematic because they give the impression that the problem is solved when the origin of evil is understood. Under this qualification, however, the differentiation of evils then provides a heuristic framework for sorting our experiences with evils. Leibniz distinguished between physical, moral, and meta metaphysical evil. I will discuss the connection between moral and metaphysical evil later. Here, on the level of creation, I'm interested in the physical evil and the question of its connection to moral evil, which Leibniz forces with recourse to the Christian tradition. Practically, we work with this thesis in our experience. We ask about the connection between physical evils such as disease and death and our behavior. I will take an obviously benign example from my own experience, a simple example. In February last year, I was riding my bicycle home from my office in Heidelberg at night. Our house is on a hill, and on the last few meters, it was slippery all of a sudden. A man shouted something at me, but I could not understand him. My inattention contributed to the bike slipping out from under, my, uh, under me. The next day in the clinic, they found that I had suffered a compound fracture in my ankle it could have been avoided. You don't have to be in the office late at night when the weather is inclement and ride your bike in such a, uh, such a weather. I knew to expect icy conditions and still chose not to get, rot, uh, red, uh, get off my bike. The man whose call had irritated me came to rescue me. And when he brought me home, he said at the end, I tried to yell to you that it was slippery. Of course, it would I would never think the man's shouting was the cause of my broken ankle. I blamed myself for it. And of course, I have become more careful since then, precisely because I made the connection between physical evil and my behavior. But there is also the opposite experience in which no connection can be made between physical and evil and moral evil. To illustrate this lack of connection, I would like to give a historical example that significantly affected the persuasiveness 
of Leibniz's rationalized theodicy, the Lisbon earthquake. Of all places, the earthquake turned the parts of the city where the churches were located to rubble. The red light districts near the harbor, on the other hand, remained practically unscathed. Not only did many people die from this natural disaster, but the criteria for judging sin began to unravel. In many cases, the connections between moral and physical evil are much more complex and entangled, such as in war. The Ukraine war stems from human decisions. Many people die, yet others do not. Theological reflection does not have, to task, does not have the task of analyzing causal connections, but of assisting in differentiated perception. On the one hand, it might make sense um, to ask about the connections between physical evil and human behavior. Some physical evils become more understandable and easier to bear in doing so. Others may become more understandable, but they in no way become easier to deal with. And still other evils remain utterly opaque. In the essay of which I spoke earlier, Eberhard Jüngel closes with the question about where the advantage of reckoning with God despite remaining opaque evil actually lies. His answer to this seemingly unsolvable mystery is one can complain to God about the evils. I share Jüngel's view in this regard, but I would like to add, in the light of God, it also becomes more possible to see which evils about which one would like to or has to complain to God and which we don't want to complain. The discussion of the theodicy problem is, of course, not finally resolved with these considerations on physical evil. I have only said something here about the physical evil, the evils in which the spirit does not assert its life-promoting power. The next lecture will take us to the area of moral evils.